You're listening to Global Questions by YDS, an apolitical podcast that, as the name suggests, asks the big global questions, delving into topics that matter to you with the experts, from diplomats to humanitarians to students. I'm your host, Jen Marcocci. For this episode, we cover COVID-19 and its effects on businesses, government relations and cybersecurity in Australia. Today, I'm joined with Charlotte Owens and Nassim Kadem. Charlotte Owens is the Policy Manager of Young Australians in International Affairs and the Executive Assistant at the Sydney Environment Institute. Are operating in a globalised world, so any economic recession or downfall overseas will impact Australia. Nassim Kadem is an award-winning journalist. She is currently a reporter for the ABC on business news across online radio and TV. We might technically avoid a recession because of all the hoarding that people did of toilet paper and various other items um, during the crisis. Thank you both for being here. What industries are most affected by the COVID lockdown in Australia? Nassim, I'll let you take this one. Okay. So tourism and hospitality, they were the first to feel the impact of the initial China travel bans and now those have obviously extended globally, so they're still the worst impacted. Um, You've seen restaurants turning to sort of takeaways, but that might not be enough to save many of them and um, I expect you'll start seeing insolvencies hitting around September. The travel industry has been decimated. We saw Virgin Australia go into voluntary administration and, and this was after they were refused a federal government bailout. Um, Both Virgin and Qantas have stood down tens of thousands of workers as they've grounded most of their planes. But it's not just airlines. We've seen travel agents like Flight Centre close hundreds of stores. We've seen a wave of Australian companies struggling because there's just no income coming in. They've had to go to the market to raise big sums of capital in a bid to ride out the crisis. Banks are obviously really feeling the impact as lending dries up and people begin defaulting on their mortgages. You know, many, many companies have been severely impacted by COVID and have chosen to either defer or eliminate dividends for the short to medium term. You touched on the airlines there. What does the lockdown mean for this industry and what do you think the future will look like? So so Qantas, Qantas actually is in a strong position financially. Um, it's, it's got cash in the bank, so it's not under threat. It's likely to survive this crisis. Uh, Virgin, however, had about $5 billion worth of debt. Um, and when coronavirus came and their planes got grounded and their income dried up, that's why they had to go to the federal government asking for a bailout. I mean, the, the Virgin, it says says, look, this wasn't really a bailout we wanted. We just wanted a $1.4 billion loan and the government could have taken an equity stake in the airline. But the government's consistently said it's up to the free market to deal with this and so we're not going to give it a loan. And so now we've seen it go into voluntary administration What happens next is really anyone's guess. There's about uh, 10 or so bidders for the companies. In the next few months, that will become clear who wins that bid and what happens. But there's really a lot of concern that a number of regional routes that Virgin Australia used to cover won't be covered anymore and consumers will ultimately lose out. 
Why do you think the government has taken the stance not to bail out airlines? I mean, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg and several other government ministers have repeatedly said it is not up to the government to bail out individual companies, that this is for the free market to resolve, that it won't step in and help individual companies. So it's really an ideological position. They don't believe that government should intervene in the free market. Of course, unions and academics have come back at that and said, well, you can't expect a free market to work in the midst of an unprecedented global pandemic. Uh, but that's uh, been the government's position and they've not changed. They might at some stage change their view. During this voluntary administration process, the government is still able to step in. Like if there's a particular company that wants to take it over, the government could also step in and, and, and offer some assistance. But this is all still up in the air. Right. So we already know that there are a lot of impacts on businesses directly, for example, reduce profits. Yet, what are the supply chain costs that we're experiencing in Australia? So global supply chains have really closed down. I mean, they've just come to a halt. Initially, the China factory closures were disrupting all sorts of businesses in Australia, from Reading retailers who rely on designer dresses made in China to you sort of bigger Retail, retail businesses like JB Hi-Fi and Harvey Norman who import electronic parts from China. But now it's really a global problem. We've seen hospitals are desperate for supplies. We've seen empty supermarket shelves due to people hoarding. And while major retailers like Coles and Woolies are doing their best to restock, you've also seen limited supplies of like certain items like disinfectants and hand sanitizers. So there's really now fears that businesses will drive up prices for these desperately needed goods. But, of course, this is something that Australia's consumer watchdog, the ACCC, is very closely monitoring. What can the ACCC actually do if we see prices start to rise? Well, it's a tricky one. ACCC can't really intervene if prices are rising for legitimate reasons. But if they see that there's collusion, if, if supermarkets are working together to try and keep prices down or behaving in a way that's, um, you know, anti-competitive uh, and not uh, allowed legal with, within current laws, then you could see them step in and um, potentially uh, take them to court. Does this mean we will start to see a rise in monopolies across Australia's industries? Well, the, we've never—I mean, the, we've never had a crisis like this. What we have seen, um, you know, we have seen companies uh, acting badly in the past. We have seen companies behaving anti-competitively in the past. And the ACCC's chair, Rod Sims, has long warned about monopolies. He, he's very concerned about monopolies, particularly now in the airline industry. You know, we've had this system of two airlines. A substantial competition in the market, um, which is why we've seen such low airfares in previous years. And now there's concerns that if Qantas has a monopoly, that it could potentially behave badly. So it's something that they're very, very closely monitoring. What does this mean for the domestic flights as well? So 
Jetstar's obviously part of Qantas and Tiger is or was part of Virgin. It would not only affect international flights if Qantas had a monopoly, it would potentially also affect domestic domestic airfares and domestic routes. What the ACCC boss, Rod Sims, has warned is that it will take swift action against Qantas if Qantas engages in anti-competitive behaviour and what it means by anti-competitive behaviour is attempts to swamp airline routes, to artificially push down prices or to try and lock in exclusive deals with airports and suppliers. So if uh, Qantas was doing such things as Rod Simpson mentioned, the ACCC does have the power under Section 46 of the Consumer or the Competition and Consumer Act, which relates to misuse of market power. And this, this section has recently been revamped and has given them very stronger arsenal to go after companies. So they can now impose pretty hefty penalties like $10 million fines or 10% of turnover given Qantas has for years been making almost $1 billion profits, 10% of turnover is a lot of uh, money. So he's threatened that the ACCC won't be afraid to use this section of the law to go after them if they behave badly. When we come out of lockdown, do you think it will be business as usual for these industries? No, it's, it's not going to be business as usual. I mean, this has had major, major effects on companies and major companies' bottom line. So just today, Westpac revealed that its first half results would be affected by a $3.6 billion write-off, about $2.2 billion of that from coronavirus-related defaults uh, and about $1.4 billion is, is relating to its penalty um, for the Oztrack money laundering scandal. But if you look at that, amount of money we're talking. I mean, that's billions of dollars of write-offs. Companies don't just kind of bounce back quickly from that. This, The economy is really going to feel the impact of this for potentially years to come. Uh, and that's why you've seen authorities like the Reserve Bank of Australia cut interest rates. That's why you've seen the federal government inject hundreds of billions of dollars of stimulus into the economy uh, because they know that it's going to be a dramatic effect and it, it's going to take years to recover. Okay, so now we'll move to the global sphere and how it's been affected by the coronavirus. So there has recently been some backlash from the World Health Organization on governments in general not reacting quickly enough to the original declaration of a global pandemic. Do you think Australia acted fast enough? I think Australia did act um, fast enough. It acted very swiftly in comparison to a lot of European states and also the US. We also have the benefit of being an island, so just limiting travel in that sense was a lot easier for us. But I think the federal government and the state government had a really strong plan from the outset to try and contain the virus as much as possible. I feel as though the World Health Organization's criticism would not be directed at Australia, considering that we're already looking at lifting some of our social distancing measures. Whereas in the US and the UK, we're still looking at them, you know, seeing that spike in cases still. And what about you, Nassim? Do you think Australia reacted fast enough? Oh, I think I think Australia's been um, 
you know, incredibly uh, strong in its response. I mean, the the government's actually come into uh, come under uh, criticism from from some economists, although it's a minority of economists. But some economists have criticised it for going too hard, too fast. That the economic uh, consequences of this will be too severe, and that there could also be health effects. People in lockdown are facing mental health issues. There's been concerns about domestic violence, all that sort of thing. So. From my personal perspective, I think they've made the right decision, but uh, we'll know in time, I guess, what what the economic consequences of this will be. How has the World Health Organization's direction influenced Australia's political decision-making? As the governing health body um, in the world, there was always going to be some sort of backlash, and that's been most recently seen with Foreign Minister Maurice Payne's call for a global independent review of the um, World Health Organization. This is mainly on mismanagement claims um, and criticizing the transparency of Chinese reporting, saying that the organization didn't push hard enough for China to disclose the cases as early as they should have, perhaps. We've seen a backlash with that as well from China, threatening sanctions and other related kind of measures against Australia. But I think Maurice Payne's call for a global independent review of the organisation does speak to a broader trend of criticising international organisations, which is especially troublesome when we're still within the pandemic. We haven't overcome it yet. Recently, there's been an increase in the amount of attacks on the World Health Organisation to do with transparency and trust between governments. Why is that? The attacks on the World Health Organization with transparency and Chinese reporting, they don't take into account that the organization is run by member states. So the international system is heavily founded on a state-centric system. Uh, Member states are supposed to uphold their own state sovereignty, which means it overrides anything else. So member states In the World Health Organization, they're all part of the body, which means that they decide the political decision-making process. And it also means, more importantly, that there's kind of this bureaucratic inertia within most international organizations, such as the World Health Organization, where they need to constantly balance the interests of member states to keep them at the table and also giving carrots and sticks to different member states at different times. This becomes a problem in a pandemic or a public health emergency because the World Health, um, World health Organization needs to keep China in particular at the table. It would have been a worse outcome if China hadn't reported COVID-19 as early as it had. We saw that in SARS in late 2002 and that had drastic consequences for particularly the Asian region. So... A lot of the attacks are centred at the World Health Organization, but the member states, including member states that are attacking the organization for mismanagement, do have a role. They do have representatives. And I believe that there's a risk that the organization is being scapegoated because of that. Do you see this affecting our trade with China? I think it's another spanner in the works, to be honest. So there's already suspicion and criticism and wariness towards Chinese behaviour just in general. Um, that can be in terms of cybersecurity, also with just maritime aggression. 
um, in the South China Sea particularly. So I think it will have an impact, probably a negative impact on our trade. Um, But probably more importantly, it just increases distrust, which will filter through um, our diplomatic arrangement with them and lead to problems beyond the economic sphere. I think the distrust between the governments will escalate. Um, I'm not sure how that will end, but it's very dangerous at a time when global coordination is needed more than ever. There's no way that we could conceive of a response to a pandemic, um, which by definition affects the entire globe without constant um, advice and consultation between governments. Um, However, that is done. So I think distrust between governments at the end of the day is obviously going to have damaging consequences, um, including a possible further retreat from globalism and international institutions, um, which has been happening for some time in the past five years. Um, But it is possible that leaders will take a leaf out of Trump's book, which is attacking institutions whilst not addressing their own issues um, at a state level. Do you see the government withdrawing their proposal into China and the sources of COVID because of the risk it has to our economy? I don't think Australia can afford to change their tone now. Once you come out with an overt statement that you want to have an independent review into the World Health Organization, of which you're a part of, I don't think you can step back from that. I think we do have to follow through and it's a constant news story now calling for the organisation to have the same powers as weapons inspectors. So I'm not sure if they, if the Australian government will recall that review. So Nassim, can you weigh in here? What does COVID-19 actually mean for our relationship with China? Right. So that there's really two schools of thoughts on this. One is that given it is our major trading partner and that we're so reliant on Chinese tourism and on international students that not much will change. And the other is that China's that the Chinese states created unacceptable risks for, the, for us and for the rest of the world. And unless we reduce our dependence on them, that we're going to face major issues uh, going forward. I think which way we go won't actually be clear until things get back to normal. And and in terms of international travel bans, that's not likely to be well into next year and and then it takes time for activity to pick up again. But as things do move back to normal, I'd expect you'd see calls grow louder for Australia to reset our economic relationship with China and to rely more heavily on our own industries and on local production. You know, Charlotte mentioned, They've been very vocal about the need to have an open and transparent review into how this pandemic came about. And they've, you know, they've made those comments at the risk of annoying China. But it's also worth pointing out that there had already been much public distrust of China and of China's influence in Australia. Uh, So I think this pandemic has only exacerbated people's fears. Since March when the lockdown began, the Australian Cybersecurity Centre has received more reports of Australians losing money or personal information as a result of COVID scams. Is this something we should be concerned about even after the lockdown eases? Um, I think that we will continue to see 
some of the COVID scans past the lockdown, which technically will, I think that it will um, lessen to an extent at some point just because people will be on probably personal devices less often. Organisations where people work often have tighter restrictions on um, what can be downloaded. There are greater regulations around that. So I think once people start using those devices again, if they've been put on hold from their work, that will happen. But I'll let Nassim jump in there. Well, I mean, we're all we're all working from home offices or our kitchen tables now. And this, of course, makes us more vulnerable to cybersecurity threats. We've already seen criminals take advantage of the outbreak by using scams and, you know, they attempt to lure internet users to click on malicious links or files, which then allow these hackers to steal sensitive data or even control of a user's device. And we've already seen cases of Zoom bombing. So when you're having a video chat over an app like Zoom and then someone unknown enters into the to into the chat today companies have been you know not as strong with their privacy settings or have been uh, criticized recently for for being relaxed with their private privacy settings Um, but i think as it becomes a more common tool these video conferencing apps and as more people work from home you'll really start to see businesses ramp up their security and privacy settings um, and they'll they'll likely do this off their own accord because they fear, fear consumer backlash but if they don't expect to see governments intervening and forcing them to kind of like what you saw with Facebook post the Cambridge Analytica scandal. We'll be right back. We are always looking for new writers whether you're here in Melbourne or abroad visit us at our website, theyoungdiplomats.com, under the Get Involved tab to find out more. Do you think this pandemic will change the way we view data and live our lives? Undoubtedly. I actually did a, did a story last month about has this actually changed the way we live and work forever? And, and the consensus seems to be, yes, it has. Companies for, for a long time, particularly bricks and mortar companies, have been fighting the move to online or not taking it very seriously. But now you're seeing most businesses having to move to online formats. Even even larger companies that were already kind of operating that space, take for example Bunnings, have seen their online sales just double and, and are now really taking it a lot more seriously than they ever had. We've seen restaurants have to be, be forced to go on to platforms that for years they've been criticising, so like Uber Eats and Deliveroo, been at loggerheads with these companies for years, but now because of coronavirus shutdowns, they've had no choice but to start using these apps to get their products to consumers. And as I mentioned earlier, like last month I interviewed Zoom's head of A pack and he agrees that as use of the app and scrutiny increases how the company treats and communicates these issues takes on a new meaning so I think as people use these apps as as businesses become more comfortable in the online space you'll see a lot of flow on effects in terms of cyber safety. Do you think COVID has quickened the pace of companies moving to the online sphere to conduct business? The pace of it's definitely moved, moved, and also the seriousness. Um, I think people know that if 
you know, another another crisis came and forces people into these uh, weird situations where they have to work from home and they can't go out. It's the online space that really allows them to still conduct business. Do you think the CoronaSafe app has foreseeable strengths that will benefit the economy beyond monitoring users' proximity to each other? More than 2 million Australians or maybe 3 million Australians almost have downloaded the app so far. Whether it gets used more widely really depends on how much they can convince the public that the app is not vulnerable to hackers, that people's privacy is going to be protected. Health Minister Greg Hunt had held a press conference and said the app can't be seized by US authorities, which was one of the concerns. Um, He said the government had legislated a change to the Biosecurity Act that will basically prohibit access to the data generated by the app outside of relevant state and territory health officials. COVID's not going to be eradicated anytime soon. There may be, well, maybe other viral pandemics in future. And although this is described as a temporary measure, it's possible that disease control contact tracing apps will become a permanent state of affairs. So I think if that's the case, we really need to ask ourselves, are we comfortable with such technology becoming a routine part of our lives? And if the answer is yes, what are the protections that will be put in place to ensure that data is protected and not misused? Why do you think that a portion of the population isn't downloading the COVID safe app? just distrust um, in governments, which is quite general, not unique to Australia. You know, public citizens have become a lot more distrusting of their governments. And, you know, surveillance generally, even before COVID, we've seen surveillance ramp up of of citizens globally, including in Australia. Uh, So I think that's why people are a lot more worried. Um, You know, even my parents, which have long been pretty um, free and and, um, willing to sort of hand over their information, have been calling me and asking me, oh, should I download the app safe? That's to me gauge that people are, are really concerned about about the way that government collects information and stores people's information. Charlotte, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I echo Nassim's point that it is um, traced back to the distrust of governments because a lot of people using apps such as Snapchat and Instagram are using these filters that capture your face ID. And we now know that these organisations are storing that data. And that caused a bit of an uproar. But I don't think we saw people deleting Instagram and Snapchat from their phones. Whereas in the first place, people being concerned about the government storing data, essentially GPS data about where they are during a pandemic, is suddenly more scrutinised, which I think is just a really interesting dynamic to have in society where you can be comfortable surrendering your data to social media platforms, but not to the government. What does the coronavirus mean for Australia's cybersecurity? So in in 2016, the government released uh, Australia's cybersecurity strategy and that was to try and ensure that Australia has a comprehensive approach to cybersecurity. It has been working with the private sector on this and I think you'll find that many of the larger companies from the big banks to telcos like Telstra have been attuned to the threat and they're doing... um, 
they have been doing all they can to protect their businesses. But what's interesting now is that we've basically all been pushed online. So I think um, there's a lot more emphasis on what the individual does and what smaller businesses do. Uh, and I think a lot more people will now pay more attention to how they can protect themselves against threats. But when you're forced to work from home or when you're forced to, um, you know, communicate with your friends via Zoom, uh, these are things that you start thinking about. I mean, I just uh, a few weeks ago had had a Zoom chat with friends and, and someone external tried to come into the chat. So, you know, I'd never kind of thought about always oh, my privacy protected when I'm using video conferencing apps. Um, but now having gone through that experience, it's obviously something I'm thinking of and I'm, I think a lot of other Australians would be as well. Do you think also misinformation during this time is something to be concerned about? Many people have been searching online for information about COVID, but the pandemic's created what the WHO calls an infodemic in which people are bombarded with information and much of it's inaccurate. So that makes it really hard to know what to trust and who to trust. Um, and, the, you know, the criminals have started to capitalise on this. They've been sending out emails that purport to offer health advice from reputable organisations like the WHO that are really just attacks. Do we know who these attackers are or where they come from? Well, I mean, we don't know, but they're, they're generally hackers and can be from smaller criminals that have long been hacking to new new criminals who look at the app and think, oh, well, that's a way that I can potentially get money out of someone or get information out of someone by pretending to be from the federal government um, or pretending to be from the WHO. So final question, do you see Australia recovering from the COVID lockdown quickly? Um, no, I think this will be uh, a drawn-out economic catastrophe. Even the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, has, has indicated that he thinks it will be three years before they'll be able to move to increase interest rates, uh, which gives you an indication of, you know, how, how long they think it will take for us to recover. Um, I mean, we've seen massive, massive numbers of companies laying off staff you know there's proje projections on the unemployment rate will hit about 15 percent that's millions of tens of millions of Australians out of work um, and you know this is going to have you know lingering economic effects if 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 the if the social distancing rules are even eased a bit it's still going to get take time as I mentioned earlier for businesses to ramp up um, so, yeah, it's it's really dire and I think around September you're really going to start to see the businesses that just haven't been able to survive because they've been so severely damaged by this. Will the JobKeeper and JobSeeker funds not, not help the economy get back on its feet quicker than expected? I mean, the, that $1,500 fortnightly payment has been... Um, absolutely crucial you know we've, we've seen these lines outside Centrelink that were so devastating um, you know of people lining up for unemployment benefits um, so that that is really uh, has been really crucial to helping people through this crisis but the question now becomes what happens when that stops when that payment stops you know people have been 
are now used to getting that fortnightly payment and suddenly if it gets pulled, they don't miraculously, you know, get money, get money growing on trees. Um, you know, it's unknown how quickly they'll be able to go back to their jobs, even if they can go back to their jobs and in what capacity. Um, so I think the next conversation you're going to see in policy circles is really does this, um, does some sort of a payment, a welfare safety net need to extend um, longer term? Over to you, Charlotte, what do you think? Do you see Australia recovering quickly from COVID? I think comparatively to other countries, we will. Um, But as has been discussed, I think it will just continue to stretch on for longer than people can actually conceive of. I think we've gone through an interesting wave of denying the economic implications, then kind of becoming okay with it, which I think is where we are now to then thinking that it will be over sooner than we thought, especially because our cases are going down, which is fantastic news, but it doesn't mean that the economy won't still suffer for a long time. But Australia definitely is in a better situation than the majority of countries overseas. We're very fortunate in that sense. But in saying that, we are operating in a globalised world, so any economic recession or downfall overseas will impact Australia. Well then, thank you both for taking out the time to talk to me today. No, thank you. If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us via our socials, website or the link in the description. This is Global Questions and thanks for listening.